This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Recently on Instagram, I ran a story asking my followers to share with me what the most problematic or unhelpful things uh, their therapist has ever said to them are. And in today's episode, we are going to break down some of the more common answers and talk about why they are so bad. Before I get into those specific answers, there's just a couple things I wanna say on therapy in general. If you are somebody who is looking for a therapist or who has a therapist, I want you to know something about therapy, which is that therapy can be very, very different from one person to the next. It's kind of a weird metaphor, I know, but I, I always tell people therapy is a little bit like dating. There are some therapists that are just bad, like that really aren't good for anybody and, and have no business being out there at all, okay? There's a lot of therapists out there who are fine, but may not necessarily be the right therapist for you. And hopefully there are at least a few therapists out there who are right for you. It can take some time to find those people. It can take some trial and error, and I know that it can be very frustrating and demoralizing. But what I wanna make sure anyone listening to this knows is that having a bad or even just an unhelpful experience in therapy does not mean that therapy isn't for you. It doesn't mean you can't get better. It doesn't mean that therapy doesn't work for your problems. It means you have not found the right therapist yet. To be in therapy, to try therapy maybe one, two, even three different times, and conclude like, oh, I guess therapy doesn't work for me, would be a little bit like dating two or three people, and if those relationships don't work out, concluding like, oh, I guess I'm, I guess I'm gonna be alone forever. I guess dating is just not for me. So if anyone listening to this is frustrated or discouraged by what they've experienced so far, I just want you to know that I hope you keep trying because I do believe there is somebody out there for you who is the right fit. Hopefully not just one person. Hopefully it's not like a one in a million kind of situation. Keep looking, keep trying, and please don't give up on yourself because I believe therapy can work for anyone if you have the right therapist. For those of you who are listening who are therapists or who are some type of mental health provider, I'm not gonna get preachy with you, but just please remember how important this is. You never know how many chances someone's gonna give you or how many chances someone is gonna give mental health in general. Some people out there are gonna try this once. You know, they're gonna see one person and if that one person is not able to provide them with anything of value, that's it. That was our only shot, they're not gonna try again. So if you happen to be the one person that they try and you don't give them anything and you don't help them, you may have inadvertently just ended somebody's willingness to seek help. And I know it's a lot of pressure, but this is the path we chose and these are things we need to think about. I think in every session, every session I have with a person, I always have it at least in the back of my mind, like if this was the last time I ever saw this person, what kind of session would I want this to be? And I always try to make sure that there's something they can take home from it, that there's something of value 
I don't ever want a session where it's just, I'm just sitting there and listening because I don't think that's what most people are looking for. So just some opening thoughts to keep in mind uh, throughout this episode. One of the most common answers was some variation of you're not trying hard enough, which is just one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Because we're talking about mental health. And when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about things mostly that happen inside of a person. So the idea that you can meet someone for an hour every other week or so and know how hard they're trying is stupid. You can only see their outputs. You cannot see their inputs. You can see what's happening in their life, but you can't see what they're doing. Leverage is the difference between inputs and outputs in a system. And so some people have to work much harder to get the same results as other people. Think of YouTube, for example. So if I had 100 million subscribers, I could spend two minutes making some stupid video about absolutely nothing and it would get millions of views, right? So that's low effort, high outcome. If I have very few subscribers, I could spend hours and hours and hours making a masterpiece. And at least initially, it's going to get just a few views. More work, less outcome. With me so far? A mentally healthy brain has more leverage than a brain of someone with mental illness. A mentally healthy person can do a few things for themselves and feel great and get great results out of it in their life. Someone who's struggling with a mental illness has to work so much harder to achieve those same results, whether it's in like life satisfaction or relationships or school or careers, they have less leverage because their brain doesn't always work as efficiently or as well. And so if you're looking at someone's output, if you're looking at how well someone is doing and you're using that output to gauge their input, that means you don't understand mental health. And if you're a mental health professional, that's literally your most important job. So if you're looking at someone who is not getting better or is getting better very slowly and your conclusion is they aren't trying or they aren't working, how do you know that? How do you know? You're only measuring their output. Here's another metaphor. Same, same general idea, right? Let's say that you and I are walking up a mountain together. We're, we're climbing a mountain with our backpacks, with all our supplies in them, right? And you are half a mile further up the mountain than me. You can look back at me and you can see that I haven't gone as far as you. That's my output, okay? I haven't made it as far. What you don't know is your backpack weighs 30 pounds and mine weighs 300 pounds. Our inputs are not the same. It does not take us the same amount of effort to climb up that hill because I am carrying more weight than you. So you, to, for me to even stay close to you, for me to even remotely keep pace with you, I probably have to work three times harder than you to even stay in your line of sight, to even stay half a mile behind you. And that's what it's like to live with a mental illness. So any therapist who's judging your input and saying you're not working hard enough, well, how do they know? They don't. So a variation of that same idea, and I don't know that a lot of therapists would say this to a client, but this is something that a lot of my supervisors and professors told me, and I know this is a very common sentiment in mental health, is don't work harder than your therapy clients. This one makes me even more upset because we're failing people, and I'll explain why. Again, how hard someone's working Unless it's you, you only know how hard you're working. If you're talking about another person, 
you're looking at their output. You're looking at what they're getting out of the work they're putting in, and you're then making a value judgment about how hard they're working based on what they're getting. So when you are talking to people who have depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD, you're talking about people who have to work so much harder than you do to get the same results that you do because that's the nature of what they're dealing with. And so if you are saying, I'm not gonna work harder than you, what you're actually doing is you're matching your input, how hard you're gonna work, to their output. And that is a huge problem because their input's probably three times what their output is. They are working so much harder than you realize to make what might look to you like minimal amounts of progress or minimal amounts of follow through. So basically what's happening when you refuse to work harder than them is they are carrying your lazy ass every single session because they are actually working three times harder than you and you don't realize it. And that's why people get mad and discouraged and quit therapy because they have therapists who won't do any work. Sorry. And, and even if it were true, okay, even if they're not actually working as hard as you want them to, they have a mental illness. Every mental illness affects productivity and energy and motivation. That's why we treat it. That's why we consider it something that impairs a person's life. That's why insurance pays you to help this person. So if you're not willing to put in more work than someone who is in the middle of a depressive episode and is feeling no sense of reward or accomplishment or pride for the things they do, then you suck. I'm sorry. You're, I know that's not the most professional framing in the world, but that, that's terrible. That's unacceptable to me. If you're not willing to work harder, air quotes, than someone who has ADHD, than someone whose brain doesn't organize information as well as yours, doesn't prioritize as well as yours, doesn't manage time as well as yours, then you're not helping people as much as you could. And they deserve that from you. People are coming to you, people are coming to us, being vulnerable, being open, telling us the things they won't tell anybody else opening up to us, treating us as safe people. And if you're gonna match your level of engagement, your level of effort to what you think they're doing, then you are doing them a disservice. They deserve more than that from you. Sometimes, you know what? Sometimes people have never had anyone consistently show up for them in their entire lives. And if you are willing to occasionally put in more work than they are, or than you think they are, which you could be wrong about that anyway. Sometimes that's all people need. Seriously, sometimes that's what makes the difference. Sometimes you showing up and doing everything you possibly can, even if they are holding back, sometimes that's what gets them to stop holding back and opens up the entire therapeutic relationship to being something so much more than it was before. So I bring everything I have to every therapy session I'm ever in, no matter what I think that person is doing, because I think that's what every single person who comes to us deserves. Another common answer to my story question was, I don't know how to help you. Now I'm gonna give a little asterisk to this one. There is a situation where this is a very 
appropriate thing for a therapist to say to a client. And that situation is if this client has a diagnosis or, or a very specific struggle that you, that you don't know anything about, that you don't have training on, that you're not an expert on. For example, I don't do much work with substance abuse. I just don't have a lot of training on it. I don't have a lot of experience in that area. I'm not an expert here. And so if somebody's main problem is substance abuse, I probably shouldn't be your main therapist because that's not my skill set. I'm not going to be able to help you as effectively as someone else could with that particular problem. So in that case, I would help you find a substance abuse therapist. A lot of the times when it's being said though, it's not because of a specific symptom or a specific diagnosis, it's because the therapist feels stuck and doesn't know where to go with the client next. And what I think therapists should do when that happens is get better and work harder. Now let's think about it for a second. You're expecting your client to change and grow and learn because those are the things they must do to get better and manage their mental illness. That's, that's the frame of therapy. That's the expectation you have for them, right? If they don't do those things, then you're going to accuse them of not trying hard enough, as per our previous conversation. So don't you think you should also be willing to change and grow and learn? Because if you're not, it's a one-sided relationship. And again, that sucks of you. I don't even know if that's proper grammar, and I've said it twice, but I'm just going to roll with it because I'm a little bit in my feelings today, as you can probably tell. We're expecting them to do that. We're expecting them to change and grow and learn. If we're not willing to do the same, what's the point of any of this? You can get better. Like, have, have you peaked? Are you the best therapist you can possibly be? Nothing more to learn? No more room for growth? I, I doubt it. I don't think that's real. I don't think any of us ever... I'm not. I'm not there. I don't think any of us get there. I don't think that's a real place that a person can be. If I... I'm not able to help somebody. And again, unless it's because they have a really specific problem that I don't understand, that I don't know anything about, I assume that the problem is me. I assume there's something I haven't figured out yet. There's, there's some angle I can take here, some amount of buy-in I need to have, maybe some rapport level, maybe we're not at the right rapport level yet. I assume there's something that I haven't done yet or I haven't figured out yet. You know what I do when I feel that way? I keep working. I keep trying. And I think that's what we should all do. The fourth most common answer was providers asking clients to disclose details of trauma in the very first session. If you do this, stop now. There are so many reasons this is a terrible idea. Here's the first. You don't even, first session, you don't even know if that person's coming back. You're asking them to tell you about the worst, most embarrassing, most dehumanizing, most personal things that have ever happened to them, and you have no buy-in with this person yet. You, in the first session, no matter how well you do, you don't have that much rapport with the person, not yet. And what you gotta remember is that person, after the session's over, they have a life to go back to. After they walk out your door, they are going back to school, or going back to work, or going to the grocery store, or going home to their families. They have other things to do. And if you unravel all of their defense mechanisms that keep all the crap that they've been through bottled up in the back of their minds and at bay so that they can function, and you unravel that and then send them on their way, you may have just ruined their week. 
or months or, or, or more. Think of it like this. This is, this is the metaphor that I think of for, for trauma. In this person's mind is a lockbox with chains wrapped around it and about nine different padlocks and all these other locking and security mechanisms, right? And if you ask them to tell you about their trauma, you're asking them to open that box in the session. Do not open that box if you don't know how to help them close it, because sometimes they don't, because they haven't opened it in a long time or maybe ever. And if they don't know how to close it, when that box gets open, you have unleashed hell into their life, and they are not gonna be the same for a while. Processing trauma is not the kind of thing where things instantly get better. Not usually, rarely. Usually, when you start talking about trauma, things get worse before they get better. And if this is your first session with a person, you don't know if they have the budget for things to get worse. You don't even really know what their life is like yet. It's a terrible idea to start with that. You also haven't earned it. It's, it's disrespectful. It's disrespectful to ask people to do that when they don't even know you yet. You have to earn that from people, or at least you should. Feelings. A proper trauma therapy session looks like a plateau, meaning you lead into it gently. There's some normal kind of small talk at the beginning of a session, right? The heaviest stuff is in the middle. And then when you know there's maybe 10, 15 minutes left of the session, you start to taper off of the trauma processing. So that person can go back to their life when they're done, put that stuff back in the box, wrap the chains back around the box, lock all the padlocks, and go do what they have to do next. Because they may not, they're probably not gonna see you again for what, a week, two weeks, a month? And everything you just opened up, they have to now think about and deal with on their own, most likely, between now and next time you see them. So you damn well better help them put that stuff back in the box before they leave, or you have just messed up their life. Another common answer was therapists telling their clients that they have a good life, or they have a lot to be grateful for, or other people have it worse, or, or some other invalidating statement like that. Anyone who suggests to you that the quality of your life or the lack of traumatic experiences in your life should be a reason for you to not feel depressed or anxious or angry or whatever else you may happen to feeling happen to be feeling has just shown you that they know nothing about mental health and if they're a mental health provider who's in your life to help you with your mental health that's a bit of a problem isn't it if you hear something like that from your provider get up walk out and don't ever come back i am completely serious about this because anyone who does not understand that there can be a disconnect between the objective quality of your life or the objective amount of difficulty or trauma that you've experienced in life and the subjective emotional experience you can have within yourself, to quote Anthony Soprano, has just revealed their own ignorance. They don't know what you're going through. That's what they've actually just told you by saying that. They don't understand how your brain works. They don't understand depression. They don't understand anxiety. They don't understand trauma. And therefore, they can't help you. You can get that kind of crap from friends and family who didn't go to school for mental health, right? If what you want, if what you need is to be invalidated, if all you need is for someone to just say, oh, it's not that bad. Your life is good. You, you, got, you have good things. Things are okay. Things are not as bad as you feel like. You can probably 
tell your hairdresser or the cashier at Walmart what you're going through and get a response like that. Your insurance doesn't need to pay for that. You don't need to pay for that. You certainly don't need to spend an hour of your time to get that. You can get that from anybody. So if you get that from someone who's a professional, get out of there because they don't know what they're doing. They don't get it. There were a lot of people who said that their therapists gave them very direct advice about what to do in life. Things like break up with him or get out of that job or, or move out of this house or whatnot. There's one situation I can think of where this would be appropriate. And that is if there is some type of abuse occurring in a setting, then it is appropriate for a provider to give direct feedback that like this needs to end, you need to leave. That's the only situation where, where I think that's a reasonable thing to say. If we're talking about any other situation, then being that certain, being that directive about something you need to do in your life is a problem. Because it's not recognizing the inherent bias that we're gonna have as a therapist in all of your relationships and all of your settings, which is that you are mostly only going to tell us about the bad parts. Because that's what we're here for. The whole point of therapy is to make the bad parts of your life better. So people don't usually come to therapy to talk about all the stuff that's great about their partner because it's not a problem. People don't usually come to therapy to talk about everything that they love about their job because it's not a problem. Therapy is mainly a space for discussing problems and solving problems. So as a therapist, you need to realize you are always gonna have a pretty one-sided perspective of all the relationships in this person's life because they are sharing with you the things that bother them or frustrate them or hurt them the most and they're probably not talking about the other stuff because they don't need help with it and that's what you're in their life for. So yeah, you might think their partner sucks, you might think their job sucks, you might think their parents are terrible. These are honestly pretty normal feelings to have and maybe they're not the best. I'm not saying that they always are. But for you to take such a stand that you are such an expert on this person's life that you know that they need to get out of there and go do something else, that's an overreach. You see this person for somewhere between one and four hours a month. The people they're talking about, you've, most, most of the time you've never met them. Maybe you've met them once or twice. You don't know very much about their life. You don't, you don't. You might know some things they don't tell anyone else, which is cool, but you've never observed this relationship. You don't know this other person or these other people. So to say that a therapy client needs to leave a situation or, or, or break up with a person or, or whatever it may be, again, unless there's abuse or something along those lines present, not an appropriate thing to do. And it's gonna drive people away. Hopefully no one listens to you. What if, like, what if they did? What if someone's in a marriage that's like, okay, right? It has room for improvement, but it's not, there's no, there's no abuse present. It's just like unsatisfactory. Okay, what if you convince this person to get divorced? I mean, do you realize what you have done in that situation? It's not a good idea. Something else that came up a lot was, unfortunately, victim blaming. Therapists telling clients, or, or asking clients maybe, like, why did you let that happen? Or why did you put yourself in that situation? Again, any therapist, any person who ever says this to you, what they're actually saying to you, if you translated their words, is, 
I don't understand trauma responses. That's what that statement or those statements actually mean. Because when we feel like we are in danger, when we perceive danger, even if we're wrong, perception is subconscious. So it's not like you can in that moment be like, oh, I feel like I'm in danger, but I'm wrong. No, it's a subconscious survival mechanism. And any mental health provider should know this, okay? The trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, are not choices that you make. They are reactions that happen in your limbic system and your nervous system, which are not parts of your brain or your body that are consciously controllable for the most part. They're not choices. They're not things you decided. You didn't decide to have a fawn response. You didn't put yourself in that situation. Something happened that felt dangerous and in a split second, your brain decided without your consent, beneath your level of conscious processing, that this was your safest reaction. It was not a choice. Trauma responses happen in the animal kingdom too. So for example, a deer in headlights, right? That's a trauma response. A deer is crossing the road and it sees something huge and incredibly fast that looks dangerous coming towards it. The deer is not thinking, I mean, I, I don't know how much conscious thought deer have anyway, but it's not the point. The deer is not thinking in that moment, oh, there's a car coming. I should stand here in the middle of the road and hope it doesn't hit me. What's happened is that in a second, the deer has seen this car. And so fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, uh, your limbic system goes through these things in order. Deer in a split second says, can I fight the car? No, it's bigger than me. Can I run away from the car? No, it's faster than me. Has the car seen me? Maybe not. So it freezes hoping that the car will pass it by, not realizing, because it's a deer, not a human being, not realizing that the car can only go on the road. The deer doesn't understand that if it just steps off the road, it would be safe, right? So it has a freeze response, and unfortunately sometimes gets, gets hit. I've had a freeze response while driving too. I used to be a delivery driver. That was one of my first jobs. And one time I pulled out in front of somebody on, on a green light. Um, so I was turning left, so it was like a yield situation, right? And I just straight up didn't see this other car coming and they had a green light uh, going straight. So I pulled out in front of them and I realized when I was in the intersection, that's when I realized what I had done. And you know what I did? I slammed on my brakes. I stopped in the path of the car. Was that smart? You can't judge that. Because that wasn't me thinking about it. That wasn't me looking at this car coming and thinking, hmm, I should definitely just stop right here that was my limbic system and my nervous system seeing something dangerous coming toward me and freezing. That's what happened. Did it work? Well, I didn't get hit, but that's not the point. The point is you didn't choose them and therefore it's not logical or right to judge them. And any mental health professional should know that. You don't have to have experienced trauma to understand this because there are articles on it, because there are books about it, because this is a thing that we know through science and research. So anyone who does not understand this, any mental health provider who doesn't understand this is just lazy and ignorant. That's what it comes down to. Does a client have to trust their therapist? No, they don't. And you know what you should probably do if your client doesn't trust you is try to earn it rather than demand it. I, I don't think it's right to demand trust. 
And that was, a, that was a, this is another answer that we got a lot of, is the therapist would just say like, oh, you just have to trust me. You, just, you have to do what I say, you have to trust. Well, prove it to them, seriously. How do you build trust? This, this is a show, don't tell situation. I, I think that's true for all people, but it's especially true for someone who's struggling with their mental health, because this person has probably been through a lot of crap in their life, and you have to respect that. You have to understand that this person has been hurt a lot by other people. They don't have that many people in their life, if any, who get it. They've been misunderstood, they've been invalidated, they've been given a lot of help or advice that didn't help them, probably from other people who demanded that they listen to them and trust them. So if you're just gonna be one more voice demanding that without earning it, you're not gonna be able to help this person. You have to show them, you have to prove it to them. You do that by rapport building, you do it, I think, my personal opinion, some wouldn't agree, maybe with a little bit of self-disclosure here and there to help people see that you do get it and that you're not just some person who went to school and studied this in a textbook but otherwise has no understanding of it. And you do it by giving them ideas that work. If I'm trying to get someone to trust me, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna tell them a little bit, I'm gonna give them just enough, not a lot, just a little. You, you can let people know you get it without straight up saying like I also have depression you can say things that show that you understand without overly disclosing all your personal details it is not that hard it really isn't okay and then once you have that little bit of buy-in then that's when you give them something that's when you give them a tool that based on what you've heard from them because you've been listening and paying attention right I sure hope so based on what you understand about their unique, specific situation, what is your number one, like I am 100% sure that if this person does this, they will feel better enough, they will notice something from this, that they're gonna come back and want more. Give them that thing. Show them that you get it. Give them your best tool. That's how you build trust. You do not build trust by demanding it. That's not fair. Something else that people said a lot in, in their response to my story was that their therapists would spend large amounts of time not saying anything. And again, I'm gonna acknowledge this can be a legitimate therapeutic tool. There are times when we can use silence to encourage someone to keep talking, to keep going with what they just said, or sit with what they've just said and ponder it. it it's not like you always have to respond instantly to everything a person says, okay? That being said, there are a lot of therapists who abuse this tool, and, and I think that's just lazy. If you think that all your therapy client needs to, to get better, or to figure out their next moves or next steps, is just quiet time with themselves, what is your job? because you know what else can give them silence to help reflect and, and think more about what's going on and what, and what they're thinking or, or saying? An empty room. Like, like you're not really doing anything by, by being there in that case. So I'm not saying therapists should never use silence, but use it sparingly. Because if you use it too frequently, I think it just comes off as boredom or lack of investment, and, and it's really gonna hurt the therapeutic relationship if you over-rely on it or use it too often. 
Something else that came up a lot was therapists not being willing to do the things that they're asking their clients to do. So for example, a therapist who is clearly exhausted and acknowledges to a client that they only sleep like four hours a night on average, but then working on sleep hygiene with the client. Here's the thing, people can smell hypocrisy from a mile away and nobody likes it. Nobody likes a hypocrite and nobody wants to listen to a hypocrite. The, the reaction that's gonna be in every single therapy client's mind, if you are not doing, if you are visibly and clearly not doing the things that you tell them to do is if this is so important and this is so helpful and this will make such a difference in my quality of life, why in the hell are you not doing it? If you want people to trust you and really do the things like, like follow through on your ideas and have buy-in in therapy, you had better be modeling, not just preaching and espousing, but modeling the behaviors that you are suggesting to them. If not, you're sending them a mixed message. You're telling them, this is so important for you. You need to be doing this. You should be doing this. I'm not going to do it though. Why? Why aren't you doing it? If it's so good for your mental health and you're a mental health professional and you value your own mental health, why are you not doing the things you tell them they should do? And why are you being so open about it? Is That's the one that really baffles me, but I'm not even going to try to address that because I don't understand it, to be frank with you. Do the things you tell people to do. Your request will be so much stronger. Your ideas will have so much more follow-through. You will have so much more trust and so much more rapport with people if they can see that you believe in your own words. Because if you're not doing the things you tell them to do, that's what you're communicating to them. I don't actually believe in this. I don't actually have faith in this. I think you should do it, but I don't need to. Well, that's crap. Sorry. Lastly, eating in session. Again, there's, there's, there's one very specific scenario where this is appropriate. And that's if you plan to do this and they are also eating. It may be, if, if you're meeting over their lunch hour and, and your lunch hour, and you both need to eat while you do therapy, sure, that's fine, do it. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, you create a great way to build rapport. Or if you're working with a client with an eating disorder and you're doing meal support with them, then yeah, you should eat in session and they should be eating in session because you're doing meal support. If, if, if you're asking them to eat, by the way, if they have an eating disorder and you're gonna ask them to eat in session, then you must eat with them. Because do you know how terrible it is to tell someone with an eating disorder to eat and then watch them eat and not be eating yourself, that you're literally torturing them, don't do that, okay? If you're, the, if you're the therapist and you're the only one eating, while they're talking, while they're processing the worst parts of their life or their trauma even, do you know what that feels like? It feels like you're watching a movie because eating while watching something happen is, is like a sign that this is entertaining to you. It's like, it's like I'm being entertained by what's happening. This is happening to keep me engaged while I consume my food, while, while I eat my lunch. Yes, therapists need to eat. And yeah, I just said a little bit ago that it's important for us to practice what we preach. And hopefully you're talking to your clients about nutrition because that's a huge part of mental health. But there are ways to model that you're working on your nutrition other than eating while your client talks to you, especially if it's something like loud or with a really strong odor, hopefully 
If you're a therapist, you know what misophonia is because it's very common, especially among people with anxiety. Many people have intense sound sensitivities and hate the sounds of another human being eating. It fills them with rage and disgust. So like maybe don't trigger them in their what's supposed to be their safe place, which is your therapy office. Eat between clients. It takes five minutes. It takes five minutes to eat food. You don't need to do that in the therapy session unless it's meal support or you're eating together. That's the only exception to this rule. Otherwise, don't do it. You're ruining your relationship with people. Don't fall asleep in your therapy session.